1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lip podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com.
0: Christy Shriver.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher, and she is also a nationally board certified English teacher.
0: Gary is an APIB psychology and history teacher, and my husband. Today we're going to tackle the final section of Fahrenheit 451 titled Burning Bright. We've super enjoyed talking about this book, especially as we look around the world today and see so many people discussing the issues that were so close to Bradbury's heart all those years ago. In this last section, Bradbury does what no public figure ever does when discussing problems of society and culture. He answers the question, now what? What should we do? And in preparation to understand what these concluding thoughts are, Let's go back and revisit what's happened in the first two sections of the book and what they mean.
1: All right, well, let's do a super quick recap of Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 so that you can give us the plot for Chapter 3. In Chapter 1, Montag comes home to Mildred. Mildred is dying from a pill overdose. There's a, a lot of time spent contrasting Clarice, the girl who's super in touch with the world, uh, versus Mildred, who's very disconnected. There's a war going on. Mildred nearly dies. The mechanics come to pump out her stomach, and she's clueless about that. Um, Then there's the mechanical dog, which is going to hunt down Montag later on. Clarice comes back into the story. Then we have Montag, Beatty, and Stoneman and Black go to burn an old woman's house. While they're at the old woman's house, she quotes some uh, lines from some books. And the whole effect shakes Montag to his core. He wonders why anybody would read a book and be willing to die for it. And now he begins to wonder whether books have magical powers or not and he goes on uh, goes home he tries to talk with mildred about these things he realizes they can't even remember their own relationship they have no connections he finds out clarice is dead and then Beatty eventually shows up at his home and they have a very important talk very important philosophical talk in uh chapter two montag and mildred are going to read together montag remembers and then he's going to track down Faber. favor becomes a character in the book montag shows mildred a bible Uh, then he goes down to see faber montag comes up with a goofy plan to try to burn down the firehouses then montag comes back home he engages mildred and her friends in the parlor turning off their televisions and scaring them by doing something very dangerous which is reading to them the women are highly offended anyway montag goes back to the firehouse uh, with his ear thimble in and his friend faber talking to him in his ear to tell him how to engage Beatty and deal with uh, the confrontations that Beatty is causing him. The firehouse gets a call. Beatty chooses to drive the salamander. They all pile into the uh, fire wagon, and the destination is Montag's home. And Chapter 2 ends with Montag standing in front of his own home, being commanded by Beatty to burn it to the ground.
0: There you go. This final section is really where we start to get into the action. In fact, I would say that, uh, although I don't know anything about movie making at all, but if I were going to make a movie, this is where most of it would be because this is where everything happens. There's going to be a murder, a chasing, an escape, a war, and a nuclear bomb. So let's go ahead and just run through quickly the plot, and then I want us to uh, kind of talk through some of the ma- main ideas and highlights of things uh, to really see um, where the where the theme is going and what the argument is being what argument is being made in the book. So here we go. First thing, Mildred has turned on Montag, and she has turned him into the authorities. Then Beatty, and so that's why they're there at the house. Beatty gives Montag the flamethrower and tells him to torch his own house, and then he starts taunting Montag. There's this green bullet that had been in Montag's ear. It falls out, favor's busted. Montag turns the flamethrower on Beatty and murders him. The hound shows up and leaps to attack Montag. Montag destroys the hound, but not before he gets injected with poison he picks up some remaining books and starts to run. There's a chase, lots of running, encounters people. There's a new hound that's chasing him. Everything is on TV. Word is getting out to look for him. He picks up a seashell, and he kind of follows his own chase. Uh, he, ultimately, he's trying to get to Faber's house. On his way, he's going to drop some, fire, some books in a fireman's house, and he's going to call to report the fireman. Uh, he goes to Faber, gets clothes, um, realizes that he can't stay. They're after him. Faber says he's leaving the next morning at five thirty. Going to go to St. Louis, and Montag heads out for the river, trying to outrun this dog. And of course, he barely makes it. He can hear in the seashell that they're going to have everybody open their door. And right when this is going to happen, boom! He gets to the river, uh, floats in, stays in there for about five pages. Then he gets out, walks around in the country, eventually runs into a commune of refugees, meets his mentor number three named Granger. They bring Montag into their group. They basically watch on TV how the hound catches and kills, quote, another Montag. And, of course, the news is declaring the crime solved. They talk, talk, talk. They look up. There's the war. It begins in ends in an instant because a bomb is released, the city falls flat, and they watch everything go up in smoke, and then they just start walking up the tracks towards the north looking for survivors. So that's the nutshell, if that is the correct expression. I kind of think it is. But anyway, the big idea uh, of the whole book, and the one that um, Bradbury introduced in part one developing through dialogue in part two. And now I really think he's trying to illustrate through the plot in part three is he's suggesting that humans cannot go through this life and have any kind of meaningful existence if we base our lives in the pursuit of fun because this is going to lead us to isolation. He's suggesting that there must be some sort of struggle and meaning has to be made through interpersonal relationships. And discourse, not just with our friends and peers, but through an interaction that occurs in our minds, with ourselves, with our past, through historical reflection and philosophical, moral, and spiritual study. And this self-reflection is absolutely a critical part of the human experience. And the consequence of leaving it out produces death and, of course, ultimately this destruction of civilization. Is that the argument?
1: I think that's the argument. And uh, I think it would be surprising to people reading Fahrenheit 451 for the first time. They would, like me, would come to the book thinking this is a dystopian novel about a government that's repressing people, about a government that's uh, using books as a way to perform mind control And getting into the book, you find out there's a distinct lack of government throughout the whole book. The government shows up periodically to have a war, but for the most part, the government, as we would think in most dystopian novels, is absent.
0: Right. This book is often compared to, like, Animal Farm or 1984 or some of these darker Orwellian books. And it's actually not even a dark book at all, even though he did blow up the world. Uh, (laughs) Well, there is that (laughs) But it's really not about that. It's about uh, the internal person and what that means. And I I want us to kind of go through it and and see really where we start off with with Beatty and how that ends up uh, with this new guy, Granger. So in the beginning of Section 3, Beatty starts off with this awesome uh, allusion to Daedalus and Icarus. uh, And that's what he calls them. And Daedalus and Icarus is a super well-known story Daedalus uh, created the labyrinth in Crete and of course uh, King Minos had locked him in there and he wants to escape so he tries to escape with his son Icarus and they they create these wings but they're made out of feathers and wax and Daedalus tells his son it's awesome to fly but if you fly too uh too close to the sun you're not gonna you're not gonna make it well Icarus is young he's in the ex- He's enthusiastic, he's excited, and so he just, he feels the thrill of the moment, and of course he flies too close to the sun, and he falls into the, his he melts his wax and falls into the sea and drowns. So we see Beatty saying, I know you're excited, but this is going to end in death for you, which is an ironic thing for Beatty to say.
1: Uh, indeed, and I'm going to digress for just a moment. One of my favorite all-time bands is Kansas. <laughs> Kansas has an awesome song in one of their early albums called Icarus Born on Wings of Steel. It's this whole story from Greek mythology.
0: Wings of Steel? They they took some liberties with that. Well, I think they
1: did. It was the 70s. They could <laughs> yeah, do that. Yeah, for
0: sure. So anyway, I also want to point out as is, is um, BD is talking and ranting and basically uh, saying you're an idiot. He increases uh, his anger. And we know this because the amount of Um, of cuss words now cuss words (laughs) people say cuss words now like just because they don't have anything to say and they inject it randomly and it has no meaning but when writers use it they're trying to suggest uh anger energy emotion and so all these hells and dams they're everywhere uh he's he's saying flowers butterflies leaves sunsets oh hell And he's talking about clarice and he goes says Oh, hell, she chewed you around, those damn do-gooders. And he's going to go on, and, and you can see him getting angrier and angrier as he thinks about what Clarice represents to him, mm-hmm. which is interesting. What does she re- represent to him, and why does he even care about her? But it almost feels like it's personal. So he taunts him, and he taunts him, and then he goes on to say, You should think about fire more. And he says, Fire... Is beautiful, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And he says it's perpetual motion. And he says this it destroys responsibility and consequences. Fire will lift you off my shoulders, clean, quick, sure, nothing to rot later. Antibiotic, aesthetic, practical. What do you think of that?
1: Well, a lot of interesting things. One of the things he says about fire that I think is great, he says, fire is real beauty is that it destroys responsibility and consequences.
0: And you get the impression, I, mean, I, I don't know, because there's not enough backstory on Beatty uh, to really know. I know later on in life, Bradbury is going to suggest in interviews that he had to make up this backstory for, for, for Beatty, and he did. And he says that Beatty was this old guy that was, had suffered a lot in his life and had been really studious and was a good student and had personal pain, his um, parents had died, he had a failed love, and he looked to books, and he gets angry, because they can't provide him, the solace that he wants, and so he turns, and he takes all this rage, and he starts to burn, and he burns, and he burns, and he spends the rest of his life, burning, and that's kind of where, you see he's talking about, I want to burn responsibility, I want to burn consequences, but, uh, but he doesn't seem really particularly happy.
1: No, and there's a couple of things I want to say. I'm going to interject this about Beatty. This comes from nowhere other than the caverns of my own mind, so I, I can't even back it up. But the way he talks about Clarice when he's condemning her to Montag and the way he talks about books are similar. And when I read the dialogue, it reads like a man who is angry because of elitists that Clarice has in his mind, projected some kind of elitism, and the books mock him with some kind of elitism. And so he's very angry at them. And plus, if we're going to be psychological, he's, he's obviously practicing some displacement. He's extremely angry at another place, but he's able to take the anger out successfully on books. They're, they're, they're targets that can't defend themselves, which is what displacement is about.
0: Well, he does, and now he's going to make Montag do it. So he takes him to this house, and he says, I want you to do this job all by your lonesome, not with kerosene and a match, but piecework with a flamethrower. Your house, your cleanup. So he gives him a flamethrower, which is a weapon, and he says, have at it. And, of course, that's what he does.
1: Which I I find that very uh, compelling. Um, Montag wants to burn his house. When I huh. read this, he joins into the burning like, Yeah, I'm going to set the beds on fire. Yes, I'm going to take aim specifically at the panels. It was like he had some anger that he was releasing towards his own house and burning it down.
0: That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. So he steps in and he's going to fire twice in the twin beds, which you notice he doesn't sleep in the same bed with this mm-hmm. one. But anyway, they go up and he burns the bed. And it's very methodical. It goes through, burns the whole thing says, the house fell in red coals and black ash and pink-gray cinders. And, of course, I point out that it's 3.30 in the morning,
1: mm-hmm. which... Showtime.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, well, I point this out because the timing is going to be interesting. The, they don't have much... They don't really have a lot of time before the end of the world. Of course, they don't know that. Uh, but, anyway, so at uh, 3.30 in the morning, everybody's out there watching... Uh, And he starts to taunt him again. Well, as I say, Beatty starts to taunt Montag over again. And he says, it was the act of a silly damn snob. Give me a few lines of verse. that He thinks he's the Lord of creation. You think you can walk on water with your books? And, of course, these are biblical allusions of referencing to Jesus and the God of of, of the Old Testament and the Bible.
1: But it's also where I got that feeling of the elitism that he's angry at.
0: And he's, he's angry, and he goes on and on and on until finally he hits him on the head. This sends uh, Montag reeling back, and the green bullet falls out. Now, this gets uh, Faber busted. And, of course, Beatty's going to say, oh, now there's more. Well, I'm going to trace that thing and go after your friend. When he says this, the self-defense mode, I guess, kicks in. And Mogad turns that flamethrower on and just burns him down. And they says Beatty flops over and over and just kind of
1: oh well dramatically
0: the, dies. The
1: description of Beatty getting uh, flamed, to use a contemporary term, uh, is amazingly detailed. But the word that stands out the most out of everything was liquefaction.
0: <laughs> Which I'm not even sure that's a real word. Is it's that a real is word.
1: It? Yes, it is. Look. I don't want to get too morbid in detail, but liquefaction is the part of the liquidation process of a decomposing body.
0: Oh, foul. You're right. We don't need to get into that. I didn't know that. We'll leave
1: that for some other discussion.
0: Yeah, for the video. Ah. So anyway, uh, Montag um, realizes that he's murdered You know, this guy. Things are going badly. The mechanical hound is there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and let me say this. One last insult before he flames Beatty. Beatty says, go ahead now, you second-hand literature. Pull the trigger. Derry Montague. So, in other words, calling him a second-rate intellectual, second-rate wannabe book reader.
0: And, of course, he has to do a final reference to literature that Montag can't understand. He calls him Cassius, which is uh, the traitor in Julius Caesar. Why would he even know that? But he just can't stop. He just no. can't stop to the very end. Then, of course, he dies. The mechanical count comes out, and it's going to uh, attack Montag, too. He burns it with the flamethrower, but not before you know he gets injected. And I guess... That whatever they inject makes you numb because it describes that he can't walk very well.
1: And as he's getting ready to run away, uh, Montag has this thought. He says, baby, he thought, you're not a problem now. You always said, don't face a problem, burn it. Well, now I've done both. Goodbye, Captain. And the chase is on.
0: And of course, the chase goes on and he runs, 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 has all these problems, picks up these four books and then he's, he stops the race, I guess, or Bradbury stops the race to get it to put us into Montag's mind for a minute. And he says, Beatty wanted to die. Explain that.
1: That's fascinating to me because when I read this uh, a couple pages back as I was reading, I went, ah, Montag's a murderer now. We're going to add that to the, to the whole pile of things that are going on. And the funny thing was is that when he writes the scene, there's no warning. It's like... All of a sudden, boom, there it is. And he's roasting this guy. Uh, And so I go for the next couple of pages thinking now Montag's wanted uh, as a murderer, which he is. But I was trying to think, why did he do that? Well, then we get a couple of pages later on and he reasons Beatty wanted to die, that this was suicide by provocation.
0: And so the question becomes, what's Bradbury saying? Why? What is he saying about this man that made this man into this. I mean, why would you? He was successful. He was. He was clearly fulfilling. He, he had purpose. This is the only guy that has purpose.
1: Well, and and Montag's thinking to himself, how strange, strange to want to die so much that you let a man walk around armed, and then instead of shutting up and staying alive, you go on yelling at people and making fun of them until you get them mad, and then and he lets, he lets the thought trail off.
0: So, any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, No. I I mean, I'm I'm mystified as to why uh, Beatty dies in this fashion.
0: Well, I don't think I know either, but I will say my thought, as I had thought about this before, you know, Bradbury said in Section 2 that there's uh, two people, two kinds of people in this world, those that build and those that burn. And uh, Beatty is a burner. And I think, if, if I'm going to project, I think he's saying this is where the, this leads. It's not, it's not a happy life. It's not a life at all. If you devote your life to destruction, you're ultimately going to be interested in destroying yourself. That's where that leads.
1: Well, that would, that would follow. I mean, if uh, Beatty is a burner, then he ultimately did what a burner does and burned himself.
0: And that's where we say goodbye to him. <laughs> and we're moving on to mentor number two, who was also not not long for, I don't know. Uh, does he escape? We really don't know. But he runs to Faber's house eventually. And Faber you know, gives him a change of clothes. And Faber's like super giddy and excited. This is the most fun he's had in his life. He says, I'm out of here too. I'm going to get out. I'm going to go to St. Louis. I'll be out on the 5 o'clock train tomorrow. Um, so I'll, we'll catch up later. Uh, you know, we'll meet up or whatever. Uh, but you got to go because they have a seashell thing. So I guess the way their society works is everybody stays in touch with everybody else, kind of the way we have updates on our phones and we mm-hmm. all know everything at all times. Well, they did too through their ear listening device. And which is a
1: seashell. I would just want to throw that as a reminder: the ear thimble or the seashell was a piece that everybody wears in their ear.
0: Which I do think. We basically have that now. My students all walk around with these... Because uh, they don't have wires anymore on their headphones. <laughs> so they just keep them in all the time. Just like the seashell thing. So he's got his seashell in. And he so he's following his own chase. And they've got this new hound coming down. And they're going to go get him. And he's basically got to run. But... The, the hound has a problem. The hound doesn't know what this guy smells like, which is clearly how they identify their victim. So he's got to go to the scene of the crime, find some, I guess, object that has um, Montag's smell on it, and then he can track him down, which, of course, is a quick thing to do once you know what you're looking for. So Montag gets these clothes so he would have a different smell, so he would smell like Faber. And he uh, heads out for the river, because clearly if you can jump, the, everybody knows if you jump in the river, you lose your smell. And that's the plan. So run, 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 run. His, I guess he has to get over his leg, because he has to run fast, run fast. And right when he's getting ready to be busted, he's going to run out from a row of houses. The city is on to him, and everyone is supposed to open up their door at the count of ten. And the door is open just as he jumps in. Woo! And as a side
1: note, in the midst of all that drama and all that chase, there's just one simple line that says, War has been declared.
0: Oh, there is that detail.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that's going to figure prominently here later on. It's interesting how this war is always part of the story, but almost not part of the story. It's just so far in the background, but it's in every chapter.
0: Yeah, it's in multiple times in every chapter. And I think, you know, that clearly is speaking to the disconnectedness of people they just they really truly don't care what's going on in the world mm-hmm. and because it's it's not real for them what's real for them is the pretend world on their walls and this is a problem this is a problem now you know no one wants to actually be connected with their actual real environment because their phony fake environment is is easier to deal with. It's more fun. It's more exciting. It's more energetic. And I just want to stay there. So in this book, there's literally a war. And, uh, I would suggest today that it's not far fetched than that there are. Maybe even in our country, there would be a large segment of the population that if we declared war, they'd go, eh, they'll take care <laughs> of it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's cynical. So anyway, he's going to dive into, uh, the river which I find is well that's a really important
1: uh, archetype
0: Yeah, in, in terms of literature water is always important river is an archetype of a life force it's a life cycle and baptism is a symbol of rebirth which is what you're seeing here so anytime in any story if a, if a character goes into the water and then comes out of the water you're supposed to understand that this is kind of uh, representative of some sort of new rebirth. We see this in, in Christian um, symbolism. When a person becomes a Christian, you know they, they go in front of their whole church and then they are immersed in water. And it says you know, buried and then resurrected into new life. Well, this isn't just in Christianity where we see this. We see this in a lot of places, and this is what we're seeing here. So he, he's got a, this rebirth, and you see when he's in the water... The, he tries to really draw out what this rebirth looks like for for him, and he does it over various pages. Did you, was there anything in those pages of him rolling down the river that kind oh, of stood out?
1: There was a lot that stood out, and to me, that were all super symptomatic of his transformation. First of all, when he meets Clarice back in chapter one, the most notable characteristics about Clarice is that she's very connected to her environment. She notices flowers. She Tastes the rain. She's aware of all of these sensations. And as Montag is floating down the river, uh, Bradbury spends several pages detailing all types of things that he's sensing. He's he's hearing sounds. He's feeling feelings. He's smelling smells. He's remembering smells from childhood. So uh, Bradbury went to a, a lot of trouble to create a lot of detail where he's having a lot of sensory experiences and he's coming alive. He's coming alive to the natural world. He had been dead to the natural world while he was living in the city, burning things down with televisions blaring and everybody escaping any kind of discussions and interactions. And so now he's very present and he's very aware that he's present in the moment.
0: I I, th- I thought that too. And the idea is to maybe he's even meeting himself uh, for the first time in a long time. He goes back and he thinks about some girl, and it's not Clarice, uh, that he had met a long time ago in his past. And uh, a young and beautiful woman who would sit in an unlit window braiding her hair. And then he does, I think, remember Clarice. And uh, there are some other examples of things that you get the impression he had not ever thought about. And, and talks. some things are very serious and some things are just kind of simple, like a glass of milk. And those are the last things he says. A glass of milk, an apple, a pear. And then he gets out of the river. So now he's on the other side. And he's in the land. And, and of course, it's dark. And he looks up and if, he sees the stars. They're, and he calls them flaming meteors. And almost to the point that it kind of freaks him out a little bit. The dark and the stars. And he makes him want, in, want to go into the river again. But he doesn't. So he's got all this land. And it's still dark. But it's not... In the middle of the night, so they burnt the house at 3.30. You know, this wasn't a very long race. And now, I guess 4 o'clock, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, the world for the first time. He's getting out onto the other side. And it says he's alone uh, in in the wilderness. And he just kind of walks and walks and walks until he sees a fire. And when he sees a fire... He thinks again about what fire has meant to him. And he it occurs to him that this is not the same kind of fire. And Bradbury is going to redefine his primary symbol in the book. Up to this point, fire had only meant destruction. And now we see that it means something totally different. It has another role. And he says he hadn't known fire could look this way. He had never thought in his life that it could give as well as take. Even its smell was different because it's not smelling of kerosene. I guess it's smelling of wood. And so all these guys are just kind of, well, I guess they're all, he says men's faces. I don't know if that's the generic mankind or not, but they're all sitting around this fire, talking, talking, talking in hush talks, talking about everything, but presumably about him Because somebody comes up and says, all right, you can come in. And they know who his name is.
1: And that's interesting. What I want to point out real quick here too, something you said just a minute ago, uh, Montag is having an awakening experience and the way Bradbury detailed it is really fascinating. And uh, every character in, in stories where they have a turning moment, they have an awakening of some kind. But Montag's awakening is so huge and so thorough and such a complete uh, turnabout from what he's ever been that is super impressive the way that Bradbury describes this awakening. Everything from experiencing the world to having memories, all of a sudden he's back in touch or is becoming in touch with who he might have been at one time.
0: And he meets this new guy who he's going to help him create his new identity. And the first thing Granger points out is, here, come on, let's go see you. They're going to kill you on TV. And they've got this uh, little TV, and they're going to create a story in town where somebody is going to be Montag. They're going to catch him in five minutes, and they're going to kill him. The camera fell upon the victim. The victim is seized by the hound. Screamed, screamed, he screamed. Blackout, silence, darkness, Montag cried out in the silence and turned away. Silence. The search is over. Montag is dead. A crime against society has been avenged. And of course everyone in town has been told what to think and what to believe about this event.
1: Yeah, this was a scapegoat chase. And uh, Montag was having this out-of-body experience of thinking they're chasing me. I'm not on the television. I'm here watching it with you. And uh, the new guy, Granger, had to explain to him, no, no, they do this all the time. They find some poor scapegoat. They find some guy who has a bad habit of walking the streets at night. And they track him for just such an occasion. You escaped. You got away. So they knew where this guy was. And they killed him for the sake of entertainment and reassuring everybody.
0: And nobody cares because the idea is even real life isn't real. We're just kind of playing along of whatever Uh, the person in charge wants me to think. And I'm cool with that because I don't want to think. Alright, so we're going to turn our attention away from town and we're going to uh, meet Granger's buddies and they're just a whole bunch of teachers and preachers and uh, people that have read a bunch of books. and Professors, professors academics. And, uh, all, and they have a collection of stories uh, that they've collected all these years and the idea being somebody has figured out how to get you to remember stuff uh, in your mind and these are all people that have read a book or another and they're kind of the guardians of, of the world as they collect this they, they're guarding all of western civilization inside their minds and of course Granger is going to delineate all these people uh, that um, that they represent uh, the people the writers of history uh, we're talking about Um, Machiavelli and Thomas Paine and Jesus Christ and Darwin and Plato and Jonathan Swift and Albert Schweitzer and Thomas Jefferson and Aristophanes and Abraham Lincoln and Mahatma Gandhi. So the question that I'm asking you is what importance or pattern do you see in the choice of all these people over these pages that he's going to delineate is, oh, remembering this dude and this dude and this dude. What's the connection between all of them?
1: Well, first of all, I would defer to all the Bradbury experts out there to answer that question. I'm just going to go with my gut reaction as the uh, the history side of this arrangement right here. But I look at the names. Um, I look at uh, Thomas Paine, Machiavelli, Jesus Christ, Darwin, Plato, Jonathan Swift, Albert Schweitzer, Jefferson, Aristophanes, Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi. Um, for the most part, These people are the philosophical anchors of Western culture. These are the foundations for reason, freedom of speech, political organization, economic organization, ideas like personal liberty and religious toleration. They come out of the minds of these people that he's mentioning right here. Of course, every bit of that antithetical to what's going on in Montag's world, back in whatever town he came from that's about to be turned to ashes.
0: Well, I can understand, you know, maybe Jesus Christ or Darwin, but what about Mahatma Gandhi? He's not even a Western guy. He's from the East.
1: Well, you know, we share ideas around the world. Well, there is But, that. but Gandhi's, uh, well, I want to say contribution comes primarily through leading India, the India independence movement against the British Empire. So... Gandhi's contemporary to when Bradbury's writing this story, Gandhi would have been a very well known figure in, in Bradbury's current uh contemporary lifetime writing this book. And another thing I want to point out that's going on that's super important during this time period, Bradbury's writing Fahrenheit four fifty-one right at the height of the Korean War. And the United States is involved very deeply in its first aggressive war against communism where we're actually shooting and killing people. And um The war has involved North and South Korea. The war has involved China. And at one point, General Douglas MacArthur was advocating for the United States government to drop nuclear bombs on China to stop their aid to North Korea during the war. Uh, And I want to say one other thing, too. We're going to talk about jets here in just a moment in the war scene. So jets were brand new technology in the early 50s when Bradbury's writing this. So he's incorporating Super uh, high profile nuclear threats that were contemporary to the time the book is being written, and also military technology.
0: I find it important to note that he's not saying that government is responsible for war. Mm -hmm. He's not even saying that politicians are responsible for war. He holds everyone accountable because the idea is when we lose who we are, when we don't know what we're doing. We're easily manipulated, we're easily distracted, we're easily bored, and we self-destruct. And all of that, And of course, uh, is going to culminate right now, exactly at this moment in the story. And he says, um, before we can uh, build a new society, basically this one's got to burn to the ground. And we're just kind of sitting around here waiting for it to happen. And he says, I don't even know if we're going to be a hero. He says, we're not heroes. We can't do anything for people. He says, you can't make people listen. They have to come around in their own time. And of course, every teacher will tell you, you cannot make people listen. They either want to care and they want to learn or they don't. And it doesn't matter what you say. You could stand up on the desk naked and you would not get their attention uh, if they're not interested in what, And what you're talking about and he says so we we just have to wait around and hopefully uh one day uh things are going to change and man is going to have whatever it's going to take that's going to wake him up and realize i have to have history i have to have culture i have to have foundations on which to build my life and when i erode those my life becomes nothing
1: and this is Granger that you're referring to. These are comments being made by Granger as he's talking to Montag, explaining the, the, the life that they're living out here in the woods. They're just waiting. And another thing Granger points out, he says, um, he calls Montag, he says, you are the book of Ecclesiastes. Another person over here is a chapter from Plato. And he said, this guy over here, he's got a chapter from this book. So all these people only had fragments and pieces of books And they weren't a whole book or a whole person, but they were all trying to maintain collective pieces of information. And he also, Granger had another great comment where he says, we're just dust jackets for these books. And so it's interesting that Granger's not offering out any hope. He's not saying we're going to rise up and create a new world order. Granger is saying we have no idea how this is going to play out. We hope it works and we get a chance. And he talks about the phoenix and he talks about the number of times that cultures have burned to the ground and rebuilt themselves. And that's what he's hoping for.
0: And just about this time, we're going to see it's 5 o'clock in the morning. uh, And boom, this is going to be the moment. Oh, I almost forgot something. Because this, I think, is going to be a good point to make. Before we have the blast, he says, oh, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, clearly it's lighting up a little bit. And he says, you look of use enough. The look of you is enough. You haven't seen yourself in a mirror lately. And that's to be taken literally because he probably does look like crap. He's been running. He just killed someone. He's been in the river. But it's meant to be taken in a much deeper way. Montag hasn't looked at himself in the mirror lately. And and that's an important idea. No one has looked at themselves in the mirror lately in that town. And the idea of looking at yourself and who you are Bradbury suggests is important
1: well the whole book is going to end on that theme as we'll get to it in just a moment but for now let's have the war we're gonna discuss the war you ready yep here's the war one sentence and the war began and ended in that instant (laughs) war is over
0: (laughs) yeah it blew up
1: the war was instantaneous
0: the war was instantaneous Granger is gonna look back and says everyone must leave something behind when he dies Something your hand touches. And he gives them this really interesting analogy between the difference between a person who gardens and a person who cuts the lawn. And we're back to burning and building again. The guy who cuts the lawn is the burner, I guess. He just comes through and he makes no difference in the world. And of course, the gardener changes the whole environment. And he's kind of challenging him. He says, My grandfather touched me uh, almost to say, I want to touch somebody else. And then, of course, the, the bomb hits, it's attacked. He thinks of Mildred again, and he sees her in his mind. He sees her screaming, and he sees her looking at her face, and he says, again, in a mirror, like for an instant, she looks at herself in a mirror instead of a crystal ball, and it was a wildly empty face all by itself in the room, touching nothing, starved, and eating of itself.
1: Oh my goodness. So you're saying mirrors are an important concept here as we wind down?
0: I think they are. Okay. So the sound of death comes. You get the impression that they kind of, there's some sort of wind or blowback on them. And then they, they have this, oh my gosh <laughs> moment. What are we going to do? They look. Everything is gone. There's nothing left. And they have to make this decision. Well, looks like the city is a heap of baking powder, <laughs> and then he says um, it takes more than that to destroy people. And he ends the his little, I guess, monologue with this reference to the phoenix, which, of course, well, it represents a lot of things. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It has a lot of has a good life. Phoenixes were more mythological in the sense that they had. A paradise life. They lived in paradise, but they were bored, and after a thousand years, uh, they would fl- they would fly near the sun, and of course they'd get destroyed, and the only thing to be there would be this little worm, and then another phoenix would grow out of that. And he uses a lot of profanity here. He says, we've got one more damn thing the phoenix never had. We know the damn silly thing we just did. We know all the damn silly things we've ever... So he's got this I don't know that it's rage in this case but he's trying to emphasize a promise this heightened promise we don't have to destroy destroy ourselves we don't have to be that we can move on we're going to be okay we're going to be good and of course we're, you know how we're going to be good we're going to build a mirror factory which i read that and went what the heck you just destroyed the world why not plant coffee beans
1: the first thing you're going to do is build a mirror factory he says come on now We're going to build a mirror factory first and put out nothing but mirrors for the next year and take a long look into them, which I think leads to uh, some great discussion to end the book with and this whole idea of reflection and self-reflection and looking into who you are looking how you're connected to other people. Bradbury has just hammered that home the entire book.
0: And it's where he chooses to wind up. uh, The idea that... You can't be whole if you don't see who you really are.
1: Right. And reflection uh, is is a very uh, important skill because when you reflect, what you're doing is you're putting yourself, you're thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about yourself in context of the rest of the world. And the whole problem with the culture of Fahrenheit 51 was everybody thinking of themselves alone, disconnected from the larger picture of people around them in society and culture, and so he's saying we need to reflect in such a way that we look at how we actually fit in the world not how we're separate from it and interesting enough it's very important to be able to look at your own face in the mirror it does a lot to give you a sense of identity even Um, years ago i was fortunate enough to hear a woman named nina Katz speak and nina Katz was a holocaust survivor and she went into the camps as a child at the age of 10 and was liberated at the age of 16. And she had all kinds of experiences that she could tell about that time period in her life. But the one that I found most fascinating, and one that she seemed to find fascinating too, was she said she did not see her face in the mirror for six years. From the age of 10 to the age of 16, which is a very formative time period, when you bring about all types of physical changes in your face, she had not seen herself in a mirror during that time period and that there was a shocking sense of having to get reacquainted with who she even was when she was able to see herself again. And it's interesting that a person has experienced that in real life and Montag or through Montag, we're saying the whole society is going to have to learn how to reflect again.
0: Everyone needs to get their mirror and look at themselves in the face. You know, going back to the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, in the book of James, there's a very interesting verse, and it says this Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like. So you have to reflect. The Bible teaches you have to reflect, and then you have to have the agency to act on the things that you yes. believe in, on the words that you, that you, uh, that you, that you that you received and whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it the bible says they will be blessed in
1: whatever
0: they do which is kind of a promising idea and i think it's the idea the optimism that we see concluding in this book
1: well and it's interesting here we are in a destroyed world with a ragtag group hanging out in the woods, trying to find ways to survive. And that's optimistic. Yeah. And so they're standing around uh, talking and this important line comes up. Montag is going to speak to the group. And it says Montag felt a slow stir of words, the slow simmer. And when it came his turn, what could he say? What could he offer on a day like this to make the trip a little easier? And he says to everything, there is a season Yes, a time to break down and a time to build up. Yes, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Yes, all that. But what else? What else? Something, something. So he's obviously quoting Ecclesiastes, who is who he is now in this new group of people. And he comes up with the next verse from Revelations 22. And on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree... For the healing of the nations.
0: And then, of course, the last five words of the story are not even a complete sentence. When we reach the city. Dot dot dot. <laughs> All right, I guess we uh, wiped out another book. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, as you already know, Gary looks at these texts with the background of a psychology and history teacher. I tend to view them mostly from a traditional literary literary perspective. We hope we've given you something to think about today. Whether you agree or disagree, feel free to express or engage them with others in your world or with us. We hope you find something to love in the books that we love. And don't forget, if you have a particular book you'd like to hear about, or if there's something we should have said and didn't, let us know on our Facebook or Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you.
1: It's not our goal that you agree with us. We just want you to love these books and enjoy thinking about them. And if you do, remember to hit subscribe. So coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, again, thanks for sharing your time with us today. Reach out to us anytime on Facebook, Instagram, page, or our website. And until next time, when we conclude Fahrenheit 451 and discuss the poem, Dover Beach.
0: Don't forget to subscribe. Peace out.